Welcome to the OA Virtual Kitchen Sink Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Kitchen Sink Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now, our speaker. John Kiernan, Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and very uh, happy to be here. I, haven't, I don't think I've been on the Kitchen Sink virtual meeting. I've been on the uh, the one that's live with real people. Um, but anyway, it's um, not that you guys aren't real people. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Anyway, um, it, it, it's, it's really a lot of fun. This was my home meeting, or one of my, I had two, Serenity Sunday and Kitchen Sink, and I've been here for many years, and it's so nice to see people like, like Tony, and, and on some of the other meetings where people I haven't seen for a while, um, you know, to be able to see them again, it's, it's really nice, because a lot of us spend a lot of time in LA, and then go, you know, this is just way too expensive. We go to the winds, because, uh, you know, it costs, uh, you know, I don't know, a $4 million doghouse here on the west side. Um, but uh, it's so it's nice to see people that I know are still working their program and hopefully are be able to take this diaspora out. I remember, before I could get into it, my real home meeting when I lived on the East Coast was in Darien, Connecticut, and it was just so such a strong meeting. And years later, I found out it was started by a woman who had been at Serenity Sunday for many years and it moved to Darien. So it's like the loop is, is just amazing how things like that work. So um, the, one of the great lines I heard when I came to OA in L.A. the first time uh, is, is the line, it's not about the food unless it's about the food. And then it's all about the food until it's not about the food. I, I just love that because that's it talks about first things first, you know. We have so much more to do after the food is down, but the food has to be down first, just like AA. People don't sit there and drink and work the steps. Um, I really wish it would work that way. There may be an isolated person here or there, but, you know, and the trouble with that isolated person is when they say, well, I worked the steps and then I got abstinent, is that there's hundreds of people out there trying to get that lottery ticket where for the rest of us, we just had to, we had to find a way to put the food down. That's just the way it is. Uh, I'm going to keep my food log really short because um, it's really dull, and a lot of the people who are regulars here knew it, know it already. Um, I came from a, a household of two different alcoholics who split up, and I went between the frying pan and the fire pretty much my whole uh, early life. And the only reason I bring that up is that um, when – when you're a kid, you watch what your parents do, and you imitate them. And one of the things my parents would do is any time they got upset, they would look around and go, I need a dot, dot, dot. I need a drink. I need a pill. I need a cigarette. I need a this. And the subconscious message that gets into you is, oh, if I don't like how I'm feeling in here, there's something out there I can put into here that will make it better. And for me, at a very early age, Growing up in real insanity was food. Food was the only comfort I had. And uh, we moved a lot. I mean, my God, I remember I was at a 
ACA Allen on meeting once, and the lady up there who was the speaker said, I moved six times by the time I was in the sixth grade. And I said, you know, I think I actually moved six times in the sixth grade. And I wasn't joking about that. But as a result, you don't make friends. You don't hold on to friends. You, you Why bother? You're going to keep moving. And the only two friends I had were salt and sweet. And I would go back and forth between them because I could, believe it or not, I could actually OD on sweet, but then I go to salt for a while and then that clears the palate and then back to the, to the sweet. Um, and I look back at this now and some of you don't know, haven't seen me for a while. I changed careers about five years ago and I became, I went back to school and became a drug and alcohol counselor and I learned a lot more about psychology and you know, what I dealt with at an early age was trauma. It really, I can look at it now, it is absolutely textbook trauma. And there's so many people here that had something like that. It may be a totally different kind of trauma. It could be a long trauma of childhood like I had. I had not only to have the alcoholism, I was a fat kid. Talk about more long, you know, long-term trauma. Um, other people have more isolated incidents and traumatic things that happen to them. And our answer to the feelings there was one thing, and that was food. It it did something. You know, we're not nuts. We didn't do it for no reason. It accomplished something at the time, you know. But it was what is called in psychology a maladaptive behavior, which is what, what character defects are, too. Um, anyway, I'm going to go really fast. I was a fat kid. It was brutal. I, I got so taunted. I got beaten up being a fat kid and uh, went all the way through school, went to high school. I didn't date. I didn't go to the prom, uh, any of that stuff. Hung out with all the misfits. And uh, at the end of um, uh, at the end of high school, I found alcohol. And now it's a different story for a different program, except it is. How it links in here is a couple of ways. First of all, I found it. I was never going to do that because I'm a really smart guy, and I hear about my alcoholic parents. I read up. I understand. I'm never going to be them. And yet, I am a real fat kid who's, you know, high school age, full of hormones, wants to meet the opposite sex, isn't terribly, terribly shy. And I found this magic elixir <laughs> available in liquor stores that makes me turn into James Bond. You know, I am just smooth and suave and can talk. And uh, I went very quickly zero to 60 on that because, you know, I was upset up for it to begin with. Um, and I, the reason I bring that up mostly is that it was the first time in my life I was able to lose weight. And I always joked that I, um, I essentially swapped sugar for the liquid variety because it's, it's a derivation of that and um, I lost weight and got to a normal weight for about 10 seconds um, I had my first relationship um, and things like that but I also want to look back and talk about how I lost that weight I lost that weight in a really crazy way I would not eat for a week at a time you know and then I'd binge one night, and then I'd go back to not eating for a week at a time, and then I'd binge one night. Well, you know, if you're a 19-year-old boy with the metabolism of, you know, like a hummingbird, uh, you will lose weight. It's not particularly healthy and everything. But in looking back, I also realized something is that I knew at some level uh, there was no dimmer switch. It was off and on. That's all I knew, and the only way I could be at a normal weight was to keep that off as long as I possibly could until it came on again, you know? 
In electronics, that's called a duty cycle. So my duty cycle was the only way I could keep keep any any weight off. Um, had a relationship that went along for a short time, and then alcohol took over, as it usually does. Dancing with the gorilla. I stopped when the gorilla wants to stop. So um, went zero to 60 with that. And then, of course, my food came back, too. I started then eating uh, and got up to what was, my I think, my highest weight ever, right before I got sober. And I always joke, I said I had, I was fat, then I was a drunk, and then I was a fat drunk. <laughs> that was my, my thing. So I found my first, um, I found my first 12-step program. I joked about this the other day. I said I started my first 12-step program during the Carter administration, okay? Just to give you an idea how old I'm getting. Um, I came to AA and I fought AA so much because I was not going to be part of some religious program. And um, I remember I argued with a guy one day. I'm putting away chairs at the end of a meeting. I knew I desperately needed this, but I was fighting it so much because of essentially prejudice. You know, I like to think I wasn't prejudiced against race or, or religion or sexual orientation. But boy, was I prejudiced about the concept of religion. I had an idea of what that meant when it's not what it meant at all here. Right. And I remember uh, saying to the guy, I can't be part of a religious program. And he said, no, it's not. It's a, it's a spiritual program. And I said, no, it isn't. And I, you know, we had the steps up on the wall. And I pointed, look, God, 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 him with a capital H. And he looked at it. And he looked at me and he said, okay, leave it out. And I'm what? He said, leave it out. Don't worry about it. Your disease is looking for some reason to head out the door. Nobody's ever going to tell you. You stay here until you're 110 years old. Nobody's ever going to tell you you have to believe in anything or believe in anything specific. The only thing we'll ask is to keep coming back and just just keep an open mind. Not telling you there, just keep an open mind. And because he said it that way, it made all the difference. Because I've heard people tell newcomers, oh, keep coming, you'll get the spiritual thing. That would have sent me out the door just as fast. Oh, my God, the Scientologists are going to get me, right? Um, but because he let me come to some kind of belief in something, it made a lot of difference. And I, I have a belief in a higher power today. Does it look anything like the higher power of my, my um, childhood? No, no. You know, because I, I think like all of us, we, we get a hand-me-down God. We get a hand-me-down God from our parents who got it from their parents. And I think the key is you got to tear that down. It's a tear down and rebuild a higher power of your understanding. And you may rebuild exactly in the same way you're, you did when you were a child, but then it's your higher power. It's not their higher power. It's not an authority figure. It's somebody to help you with your life and help you with your disease and help you with your problem. Um, anyway, real quick, uh, I came to AA. I got sober for a little while, started doing the crazy dieting again because, like I said, I was at my top weight. And then I went out with alcohol because I was trying to do too many things at once. And I came back, and I and for hopefully the last time, um, I, I joked last year I have a, 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 a medallion. I get one every year. It's got a Roman numeral in it. And so last year I was 40 years sober, and I, and I looked at it, and the medallion had in Roman numerals. The trouble is it said, XL. And I'm like, oh my God, extra large. I don't, <laughs> compulsive eaters don't want anything that says XL. Um, but anyway, uh, for what I hope was the last time I came back, but by then I'd heard about OA. Because, you know, you come to one program, you hear about all the others you need. Um, 
And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. I got this, God gifted me with this wonderful brain, real high IQ, absolutely useless with my diseases. Absolutely. In fact, it, it almost worse to have, a, you know, they say nobody's too dumb to get this program. A lot of people too smart. And uh, it all of a sudden made sense why this would, uh, I could be so functional in so many other areas except this. And so I, I came to OA. I fell in love with it. Uh, got a sponsor. was doing everything. And um, I always tell this story. I've had it every iteration of this disease, whether I've been a compulsive eater, I've been bulimic, I've been an exercise bulimic. And for this one time when I came to OA, I became anorexic. And here's the story. When you've been fat your whole life, the concept of goal weight, it's like, you know, angels are singing. You're, you know, um, and I had a number that I wanted to get to, and I got to that number, and nothing changed. I didn't like myself anymore. I wasn't any more confident. I just got to that number. So genius I am, I go, oh, well, that must not be the right number. So I lose another 10 pounds, and nothing's changed, you know. Women aren't grabbing at me as I walk by the street or whatever crazy stuff I was thinking. So I just said, oh, there's another 10 pounds. And so for this one time, I actually got anorexic. And people were looking at me in meetings and going, are you okay, John? Because this was like the height of the AIDS crisis. This was not a good time to be skinny. Um, and so I, I, I tell people that because I had to do that. I know my personality. I had to do that. So I could see what I heard in these rooms but never believed. And that's that there's no number on a scale that's going to get me to like myself. No number that's going to make me feel confident or, or secure. It's, it's such an inside job, and I could see that. Um, so anyway, let me, let me zoom forward. I did well for a while. I moved to L.A. My program fell apart. I was just, it was miserable, and especially when you know by what it, how it should be. Uh, I was just, I was so slipping, and so I call it a relapse cycle, you know, a week on, a week off, two weeks on, two weeks off, and I, I just remember the, the, you know, the baffling demoralization. I was, I was, I had a sponsor, I was a sponsor, uh, I was going to meetings, I, four or five meetings a week, I was a secretary at Artists and Abstinence meeting, which I shouldn't have been, I was sponsoring, which I shouldn't have been. And I'm a delegate for intergroup, right? All of these things. And uh, in fact, Tony was the chair then. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm going to these meetings, and, and I leave artists in absence after having been secretary, and I stop at the donut shop on the way home. And I'm sitting there going, I leave going, what the hell am I doing? I, I'm not sentenced to OA. If I don't want to be here, I don't have to be here. And that was that, you know, that, that pitiful, you know, demoralization. And it came a long time to get what it was really all about, you know. Um, I had never really taken the first step. Uh, you know, I'm a really good student. You know, you give me the syllabus, tell me what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to parrot it back to you. I was told I'm powerless, so I would get up and go, I'm powerless. And then I'd go eat. And then I'd come back to a meeting and go, I'm powerless. And then I'd go eat again. And I'm powerless. Well, how powerless did I really think I was? Was I saying, oh, the hell with OA, I'm leaving, this doesn't work? No. What I was saying in the back of my mind, not even consciously, was when I'm done, I will come back and I will get abstinent again. You know, where's the powerlessness in that, right? And the thing was, I had a very good logical reason for thinking that way, and that's that I had 
all the empirical evidence that I was powerful over the food. Because if you've ever broken your abstinence and then tried to get it back, I knew that if I broke my abstinence, when I came back, I might, I could grind that that train to a halt again. I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I might have to do all kinds of writing and get a new sponsor. But eventually, the food would be down. The trouble was, as soon as it was down, the clock was going on when I was going out again because I didn't understand that I was powerful over the food in the small picture. But when I pulled that camera back and took the wide establishing shot in, I was not abstinent. I was on a multi-year in and out, in and out, in and out cycle. And I had deluded myself into believing that those ins were abstinence. And they just weren't, okay? And and what I know now is that here's the difference for me. I could go run for 500 yards and then sit down for a while and then get up and run another 500 yards and sit down and I could do that for 26.2 miles which is essentially what I was doing that versus running a marathon meaning I was taking care of everything life had to throw at me a lot of shitty stuff happened and I didn't eat over it and that's where the growth comes I would constantly bail into the food it was the pressure valve and I didn't grow and it wasn't until I got the food down and kept it down that things started to change, you know? I always like to talk about the food. For me, I use the, the, the metaphor, the food is like the world's best salesman, you know? If you think about a salesman who, you know, you know, they're likable and... Uh, you know, five like, minutes left. Thanks. I love the fact you got a counter up on that. It makes it a lot easier. Um, but you think of the food as the world's best salesman. If you know a salesman, they're likable, right? They're suave and, and they like their product, which in this case is the food. And they know you like the product, which is the food. And they're trying to make the sale to get me to go eat all the time. And the thing is a couple of things. First of all, that salesman's there 24-7 trying to make the sale. And the salesman can read my mind. Imagine how hard it would be if you walked in to, to maybe look at cars on a car or, you know, a dealership, and the salesman could read your mind. You, you'd walk out with a car because anything you would say, it would have the answer to. And that was the problem with me and, and compulsive eating. You know, I had an answer for every reason I shouldn't, right? And, it, and the, the really evil thing about this disease, I always say this, is if that salesman makes the sale and I end up going out and eating, it, he then puts his arm around me and says, oh, and by the way, this was your idea. You know what? It wasn't my idea. If it was my idea, I wouldn't have been going to four to five meetings a week. I wouldn't have been a secretary. I wouldn't have been a sponsor. I wouldn't have had a sponsor. I wouldn't have been a delegate. I would have just eaten. But that's the trouble with addiction. In that moment of impulse, it convinces you it's your idea, you know? And that was the thing it took me so long to see. Uh I also had to grow up. That was part of my problem, too. I went to another program for a while, and, and you know, they had a very rigid food plan, and they used to say, we, we eat uh, three meals a day, nothing in between, except diet soda, sugar-free gum, whatever it is. And that worked for a while for me, but the trouble was it became an authority figure. The program became an authority figure. The food plan became an authority figure, and I'm an oppositional personality. And... So it worked until it didn't work. And I came back to OA, 
And there was a great guy, any of you LA people remember, remember, I think he's still around, I don't think he doesn't go to meetings anymore, but Ray from the Valley, Ray I think has over 50 years now, Ray would get up and he would say, my abstinence, here's my abstinence, my abstinence is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, if I'm willing to pay the price. And today I am not willing to pay the price. So I eat three weight and measured meals, nothing in between except diet sodas. And he says the exact same thing at that program. The difference is Ray is working Ray's food plan. Ray is working his program. He's taking ownership of the abstinence. And that was is so important. You know, as a sponsor, I don't have very many real hard and fast directions. The one I do have is you can't use the word can't when it comes to food. I can't eat sugar. I can't eat pizza. I can't. Sure you can. This is America. You go down to Costco, get a 55-gallon drum of anything you want, right? It has to become, I'm choosing not to do this because I don't like the person I become. I don't like what happens in general. And that, it took me so long to get that, you know. Um, I know now, I'll make it really quick, I got the idea of powerlessness. I finally got the idea of sanity, you know. I got really annoyed when I heard the word insane because I'm so functional. Most of us are way overachievers everywhere else. But what I finally got it one day. There was a, a definition of insanity that hit it. It said, a state of mind that prevents normal perception. Now, if you think about what makes up sanity, um, a good majority of sanity is decisions, right? We make a thousands and thousands of decisions constantly. What am I going to get up? What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to wear? And we do these really well in all areas except one or, or two in my case. And that has to do with the food. And the thing is, I got this great decision maker up here on my neck, and it makes really good decisions, and it's really good computer. The trouble is, when it comes to the food, I have a disease that corrupts the data that's coming in. And as a result, I am absolutely sure a perfectly logical thing is to put a glass of whiskey into a glass of milk, and it'll be okay for me to drink, right? And that's, we always laugh at that, but probably that person did too the next day. How many times did we say, what the hell was I thinking last night, right? And so I had to get that, and I also had to get the concept of being willing to ask for help and turn it over uh, and, and, you know, get some help. And I had so much trouble with the phrase turn it over because I just I couldn't grasp that. And then the AA 12 and 12, I was reading something that talked about a door or a gate. And to me now, turn it over is about opening the gate and removing the blockage of self-will. And to me, that is it. I stopped John, swimming time. upstream. Okay. I stopped swimming upstream. I went with everything. And it's made all the difference in the world. I have led a generally happy, serene life for the last, oh, I didn't get my numbers, 40, 41 years in program. 27 years of abstinence, 105-pound weight loss is approximately um, for 27 years, um, or for most of those 27 years. Uh, but anyway, the point being, I'm happy now. In other words, if you had to be abstinent and not be happy, why would you want to do it? You know, we are. We can be happy, joyous, and free, like it says, you know, 132, 133 page. Anyway, thanks for letting me share. Uh, this is time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us. 
After the meeting, also please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon and the secretary will call on you. Secretary is going to do that, right? Uh, secretary will call on you and then you can unmute and ask uh, the question. So I'm going to let the secretary take over on that. <laughs> All right. Who would like to ask a question? Well, I'll start. John, what do you do on a daily basis to uh, to work your program? Good question. Good question. Um, one of the things I'm a huge believer in was two things. Waking up and pausing. Um, take a little bit of time. Um, my old AA sponsor said to me once, because I'm an eight personality, sitting down and getting me to get in a lotus position and meditate just ain't going to work for me. And he said, here's what you do, John. Get up make your cup of coffee, I actually drink tea, and don't turn on the computer, don't turn on the TV or the radio, just take a couple of minutes, just decide, think about how you're going to go. And for a long time, I had a wonderful uh, adjunct to that, and that was having a dog. I would walk the dog, it would take a while, I got to see the birds and everything, and it was an important way to start my day. Um, I also believe in reading one of the readers. I've, <laughs> you can't see, but I have a bookcase behind me. The entire shelf, I think, is all readers from one program or another, you know, 24 hours a day, one day at a time for, for today, a couple from Alabama. Anyway, the thing I like about that is I open up and whatever I read is something I would never have thought about that day had I not read it. And invariably, at some point during the day, Something's going to happen, and that thing I've read is going to be there, and it's going to help me. I don't know why it's bizarre, but it does happen that way. And so having some kind of a morning routine for me, it, it's me becoming the author of my day, not circumstances I hit when I wake up. You know, I always say, if I do that kind of thing, I start my day. If I don't, every once in a while something will happen, and I can't. I would have an emergency. I have something I had to do. I always felt like I got thrown out of the car at 35 miles an hour, and I was just trying to stay up and not go face down on the gravel. But if I can start and be able to be, like I said, the author of my day, things changed. And so that's what I do. I eat three meals a day. I eat the same breakfast for God knows how many years now. I'm very happy with it. Uh, I eat one of a couple of lunches and dinner, we work out, but it's all reasonable. And I used to weigh and measure a lot. I don't weigh and measure the way I used to because I've got an eye that can, I can hit five ounces of protein and you give me that in a digital scale, I'm going to come really close. Um, but in the beginning, I needed to do that. And I always say that the two scales for me are the uh, denial busters. I needed to have one so that you know, if I went to Morton's Steakhouse and they gave me a steak this big, I couldn't look at it and go, well, you know, that's five ounces, <laughs> you know. Um, and I don't, I didn't actually take the scale of the restaurants, but by then I had a good idea. And then I also happen to believe in, in weight scale. Um, I learned from the other program like once a month until you get near goal and then once a week. And again, to me, it is about I can be totally out of touch sometimes. I can tell myself Program's going great. I'm doing fine. I'm following food, plan fine. And then I get on the scale and I'm up five pounds, you know? And then I have to say, okay, one of two things has happened. Either gravity is no longer a constant or 
I'm screwing around somewhere and I don't know it, you know? And and so I'm a big believer. And I know some people say, oh my God, I can't I can't do that. I'm on the scale all the time. And I always say, well, if you can if you can be Kug abstinent, can't you be scale abstinent too? And I said, you know, maybe you have to take the scale and put it in the back of the closet, you know, behind some stuff until once a month. But for me, I I need to have some way of knowing because I have the brain of a compulsive eater. And I can't tell, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen. So anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you. Um, Deb. Thanks, John. Um, can you talk about how relationships have changed for you, um, you know, since before recovery and now being in recovery? Thanks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it, it's amazing how less annoying people are when you get more recovery. Uh, <laughs> But really, it, you know, one thing I've always said that that program gives you if you really work it long enough is something I don't think I really ever had a good grasp on, and that's compassion. Compassion and taking, you know, not making myself the center of the universe, realize other people have things. There's a great thing in Al-Anon. It has like this checklist of emotional maturity, and one of the things it talked about Sometimes I have to be inconvenienced for the convenience of others, and I will get that back and, and to, to sort of remember that, you know. And the longer I'm around, you know, I, I lead these I, – I, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. I do a lot of groups, not only on drug and alcohol. I do it on depression and anxiety and a lot of stuff. And I always say the thing that was the hardest to get was um, – uh, well, I, you know, in my business, they'll say self-love. That always just, again, I have the, the trifecta of cynicism. I'm an alcoholic New Yorker comedian. And you put those together, and I hear a word like self-love, and I want to roll my eyes. But self-acceptance works for me. Self-acceptance, accepting that I am a human being, and I'm going to screw up no matter how much I don't want to. Um, and, and the thing hit me one day is that, you know, we're all just these little kids running around in these adult suits, and none of us got the manual. None of us got the manual on how to deal with life and how to deal with people and how to do it well and all that. And so we spend our entire lives in a, in a series of trial and error, trial and error. And sometimes my errors affect you, and sometimes your errors affect me. And the other thing is I look back at all of my errors and beat the crap out of myself about them instead of saying, hey, I was human. I was dealing with what I had, especially before I put the food and alcohol down. It was all I knew. You know, I got raised by wolves, I like to say. I had to figure things out. And thanks to you guys in program and the, and the literature and the big book and all that, I, uh, I got a lot better at that, especially self-acceptance. And if I can have compassion for me, it changes how I look at other people. My favorite paragraph in the big book is on page 417. But it's not the acceptance paragraph. It's the one right after it. And it says, uh, uh, when I complain about me or you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. And I read that for a long time about being judgmental of other people. When I'm complaining about you, but that's not what it says. It says, when I'm complaining about me or you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. Meaning, I'm right where God wants me right now. Now, I don't like that. I want to be better. I want to be perfect. But I can also accept maybe there's a reason I'm here with my flaws, that maybe it's to be compassionate toward other people who have flaws. And 
And and for me, that really worked really well. Yeah, I'll just say one last thing. I got this one time. There was a, 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 a being on interview. I forget where it was. It was a local L.A. station. And there was a guy, this was like many, many years ago, before before gay marriage happened. He was gay, and he'd been in this long, long, long-term relationship. And the reporter said to him, well, how do you make a long-term relationship work? And he said, I get up every morning, I go to the bathroom, I look into the mirror, and I say, hey, you ain't no prize neither. <laughs> and that, that really helped. You know? So anyway, that's my thoughts. Um uh, well, first of all, you know, since you know, the, the real annoying thing is the credits don't transfer. Um, you know, when I first came to OA, when, when I lost my, my sponsor, then the, the first couple of months, well, I don't, I got a sponsor in the mothership program. I don't, and of course, it's not true. I needed somebody who shared my problem. And for me, I go now to more OA things than AA only because if you think of it like a fortress, your, your sobriety and absence being a fortress, the first line of defense for me is the food. I'm always going to eat before I drink. And if I keep the food in order, the sobriety will, will come as well. The other thing I'll say that really helped me a lot was going to Al-Anon. Um, especially, well, I, at first I went to ACA meetings because I was an adult child of alcoholics, but then I started just going to regular ones. And, man, those... I always call them those ninja ladies, those 12-step ninja ladies in Al-Anon were so helpful. And it made me a better sponsor. It became, as a sponsor now, it's like, here's my experience, hope. You know, you want it, fine, you don't, it's okay. I won't, you know, I always say to people, if you slip, I won't gain a pound, <laughs> you know. Um, and I don't judge. Uh, but in the early days, I would get into these, like, power struggles with sponsees. And now it's, uh, I realize that I don't do that anymore. You know, everybody has got their path. And I, I've also sometimes I realize I am not the right sponsor for you. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to cut somebody loose. I'm just saying I can see how we're not meshing. And, and getting the right sponsor is like getting the right therapist. If you don't click, you, you know, you're essentially wasting two people's time. You have to have somebody. And I remember, I think it was Jack S. said it once. You need somebody you can be absolutely honest with about everything. And and to have the faith you won't be judged or whatever, but you have to be willing to be honest. And especially in the early days, you know, I I didn't want to sponsor because I didn't want to be accountable, to be honest with you. You know, now I, I do. And I want, you know, what the big book says and what the promises say. And, you know, both, by the way, the 10-step promises to me are just as powerful as, as the 9-step promises, especially the one which is, to me, the goal here, that um, we want to be placed in a position of neutrality around the food, you know. And today I'm there, but to get there, I realized it's actually a really simple thing. If you want to be placed in a position of neutrality around the food, you just have to be willing to give up any food with which you can't be neutral, you know. And the trouble is for a lot of us uh, figuring that out. You know, a lot of us do that red light, green light, yellow light food thing. And for those who don't know, that means red light are foods I know I can't eat. The green lights are the one I can. The yellow lights are the ones that fall in between. And unfortunately, most of my yellow light foods are actually red light foods I'm still screwing with, you know. And um, it's, a, it's a lifetime thing. You know, this lady Kim G says, there really is no such thing. It's either going to trigger the obsession or not, which is true, but it's a lifetime thing of figuring out which pile that needs to go in, the green or the red. And and so 
I hope that helps. Uh, Bernadette. Hi, Bernadette, compulsive overeater and from Ohio. Um, I, I really, really, there was a reason why God made me miss my home meetings and come here. I really loved hearing you. My question for you is this. Did you ever suffer from empty stomach syndrome? Meaning like, I'll, I know I'm not hungry, but then I don't like the fact that my stomach is empty. And how did you ever have that? And how did you deal with that? Sure. That's what you I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For me, it took me a long time to see that for me, this is only my biology. It may work for you. Your mileage may vary. I had two kinds of hunger. I had stomach hunger, which is really simple. We all have that. Go eight hours without eating. You know what stomach hunger is. But I also had something I call blood hunger, which is a blood sugar drop. And it would make me like antsy. And I had conflated those two together because they both had the same cure, which was to eat. And it took me a long time and a lot of work. You know, they talk in my business about mindfulness a lot. Okay, stop. Am I really hungry or is this just a little anxiety thing? And is it about something? You know, why am I getting this now when I didn't have it a half hour ago? You know, and and it, it took me a long time to see that there was the difference. Yours may be, a, you know, a biological thing, but for me, I really started paying attention when I said I was, quote, hungry. Was I really hungry? You know, gee, I only ate two hours ago. You know, and, and I didn't exactly just eat a little bit of broth. I ate a meal. Why am I, quote, hungry now? And it took a long time to realize that hungry can sometimes be, quote, hungry. I don't know if that helps. Uh, Cheryl. Thank there you so go. much, John. Thank you. Um, if I heard correctly, you called yourself cynical, and yet you appear to be the consummate optimist. So if you could briefly, in the minute and a half we have left, talk about the progression of becoming happy, joyous, and free. Sure, sure. Um, well, first of all, they always say a cynic is just a disappointed optimist at one point or another. Um, I'm really not anymore. I just, I, again, for me, the real thing that changed was the outlook, you know, and it's all through the book, about how I look at the world. And and to realize I was so judgmental, you know, and that, that, that line from 417 really helped to realize I'm really judgmental about people, but the person I'm most judgmental about is me, and then it leaches out to everybody else. And now... I see things that look really stupid sometimes. I see things that I go, this, this person's an idiot for doing whatever they're doing. But I've had enough situations where I maybe have approached somebody and said, this seems really stupid, and to have them give me a piece of information I didn't have that means the difference between that thing looking really stupid and looking perfectly logical. And Excuse me, John, that's your time. Okay, I'll finish it up. The, the, the thing about the 10th step is, I was always really good at it right away. I just wanted to stop having to do it so much. And the longer you work and the more time you have to spend making 10-step amends, the more you wait a minute and go, okay, is this, Al-Anon has a line. I'll finish up. Something like, uh, and maybe somebody from Al-Anon can do it, but is it helpful? Is it kind? Is what I'm going to say be of help? 
and I found a lot about, somebody said it once, the key to recovery for me is not just the food going in my mouth, but the words coming out. So anyway, thanks for letting me share.